It's great. Fr- it's inspired by a movie called Good Morning Vietnam. You know I love Robin Williams. Don't we all love Robin Williams? <laughs> R.I.P. R.I.P. Yeah. Sorry. Do you really love Robin Williams, or no, are you being of sarcastic? Course, of course I don't. All right, fine. As, as you know, I hate uh, fun. fun. You hate fun. I hate comedy. Yeah. Um, and I hate uh, white men who people think are nice guys. Sorry. Oh yeah. Okay. Yeah. I, I like you. Well, I'm not a nice guy though. <laughs> See, you you're, you've got the wool pulled over That's your true. eyes. That's true. I'm an asshole. Um, uh, I've known you for years. It's not a revelation. <laughs> <laughs> I'm an unfeeling monster, just like all the other white guys. You fucking monster. I am. Uh, so this is a good high energy opening. Yeah, we're trying to be more high energy than last time, uh, which was two weeks ago, uh, which we had to take another brief hiatus unexpectedly for both for lots of reasons for both of our personal yep. lives that we won't get into personal and professional lives. Yes, yes. But you know, like busy, we're, busy, busy. We're coming out of uh, we're coming out of deepest winter. Mm. And into ambivalent spring. Spring is basically springing. It's rainy and wet and gross outside instead but of just... Bulbs, bulbs are coming up. Bulbs are coming up. There's some green trying to emerge. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe for the last time in Earth's history. Oh, Jesus Christ. <laughs> <laughs> I like to keep it real. Yeah, yeah, like that's right. I like to keep it real. That's right. Um, so, yeah, that's good. Yeah, so uh, this is uh, Maroon on Mars, the podcast where we are reading the Mars Trilogy by Kim Stanley Robinson. Yeah, and, and if you don't already know, I'm Matt. And I'm Hillary. Okay. And this week is episode, on, this week's episode is part 10. <laughs> part 10, Ver- Ver- you want to say it? No, you say it. Vertus Vandal. Vertus Vandal. <laughs> <laughs> I'm making funny voices It's now German. To try to become a shock jock. Uh, that is that is the logical next step after doing a podcast about some uh, intellectually compelling science fiction. It's literally one of the only viable jobs in the world <laughs> is a horrible radio DJ or uh, or care podcast work. or care work care right? work or uh, uh, yeah service work. Yeah. Um, uh, it's a Nergal chapter. It's a Nergal chapter. It's the shortest chapter in the book, I'm sure. It must be. Well, it might not be like the last. No, Phoenix Lake is super long, um, right? Or is it super short? Anyway, it's a short chapter. It's one of these short chapters. It's a short chapter. It's a it's Phoenix a really fast short. chapter too because it's yeah. like Nergal's running the whole time and the chapter is kind of running it's forward. It's literally the whole time. fast. Yeah, and it it's one of these chapters that, <clears throat> unlike other chapters, which takes may, may take place over weeks or months, this chapter really seems to take place over like a few days. Yeah. Yeah. Um, even though I think it, I think at the begin. No, I think it does take place just over a few days, right? Um, but it also works at like as like one of these transitional chapters mm-hmm. because the prologue sets us up for this hyper fast, super distant, high speed travel that will make the entire solar system much more like Europe was in the 19th century, <laughs> as they say. And after this chapter, um, the next chapter, uh, what is it called? Uh, Veriditas is going to like catapult us uh, sort of into um, 
across a lot of time. Yeah. Right. Right. Uh, and and the prologue to the next chapter sort of talks about you know a whole age of like massive transformations and things like that. So it's very exciting. So it's another. I mean, it's, it's a another transitional chapter. It's a transitional chapter and an interesting chapter for, for thinking about. Um, uh, like acceleration mm. or re even rapidity of movement, like sort of like, um, you know, how you might think about like rapidity in some conceptual ways um, about like how moving fast makes things closer. So a particular kind of way of thinking about time and space. Mm. Um, yeah, so we have the great opening, which is about like this new, I guess, fuel technology. Yeah, they are... Uh, with hydro hydrogen 3, is that right? Uh, deuterium and helium, helium 3, 3 are struck with by H3. your laser array. And these are... Uh, they're, uh, these, they're little <clears throat> spheres. A, a, centimeter, a, a centimeter radius mass 0.29 grams. And you burn 1,290 of them per second. Uh, and then you get to go super fast somehow. Yeah, fast acceleration... Um, coasting deceleration right and to make travel in the solar system um, uh, vastly more efficient going to bring the solar system together yeah so we have that line on 452 that you just cited it will make the solar system something like Europe in the 19th century train trips ocean liners um, there are all these great like uh, 19th century reactions to train mm -hmm. travel. Yeah. Um, Wolfgang Schivelbusch. Wolfgang Schivelbusch's awesome book about train travel, um, which are all about like, you know, are we going to go crazy when we are able to move so rapid? When you look out the window of a train, the landscape is going by you so fast. Like, how will we be able to continue to like sort of properly emplace ourselves in space if it's possible for us to move so fast turned out they were right uh well yeah, yeah exactly exactly <laughs> those were not uh, like like uh those were not frivolous concerns no and it's such a great i mean it's such a great kind of um i feel like we've talked before about the idea of structure of feeling like um and thinking about you know what it was like to when train travel was still something that you noticed that you were doing and you noticed that it was sort of propelling you right. through space in a way that was weird and you noticed that as you were looking out the window you were seeing something that was strange you were seeing a landscape that was passing by you and blurring flattening out toward the horizon all of those kinds of perceptions like you know these people who write about who were writing about that in the 19th century are writing about a new experience that becomes commonplace yeah. so extremely rapidly, at yeah. least at least for like, you know, people in like Euro America sure. right. initially, right? That that just uh, something that seems so radically and dangerously alienating mm -hmm. then just really easily gets enfolded into like, oh, this is just like a normal experience mm -hmm. that mm -hmm. you have. Or and in fact a slow experience, right? We yeah. we spend all of our time complaining now about how slow trains are well i mean back then we they were all of our time complaining about that. i do for sure i mean like just or i don't complain about how slow they are i complain that there aren't enough of them that i have to drive freaking everywhere even in chicago but um that um uh oh but in the 19th century the speed they're complaining about is like 30 miles yeah, an hour exactly where it's like you drive through a school zone at 30 miles an hour. Yeah, right, I mean, right. You get a ticket, but you still do it. But, uh, but yeah, it's like absurd. It's, it, it, but it's, it's an interesting case of this because the, the, the chapter, 
as a <laughs> whole is about this weird regression mm. to this primitive state mm -hmm. that the future allows for so that progress is looks very strange at, at all times right like that the that they're they're comparing this like interstellar interplanetary travel to train trips in the 19th century like this they have they have they have to use that metaphor of going in the past to explain the future and then Nergal what he stumbles upon is this group of feral people uh, behaving as if they were embodying the image that they have of what quote unquote primitive people yeah, would have yeah. been like prior to civilization yeah. or prior to whatever right, right hunter gatherers hunter gatherers yeah, right. And and since the, most of the chapter is Nergal running, we also have this sort of like self self prepare all these questions in here about like fueling and yeah. eating, yeah. being self propelled across the landscape um, versus like being in a vehicle. I yeah. mean, those. I, I think that those. Uh, you know, when you're reading it, it just feels like, oh well, yeah, he's running. Oh right. no, he's thinking about a train or whatever it is. But that but that's actually a really interesting like. That idea, so part of what Nergal is doing at the beginning is he's preparing for an around-the-world race, which yeah. he has won five times. Five times. <laughs> he's won five out of nine times, and he really wants to win the next one so he can win a majority of the first ten. So awesome. Uh, hilarious. But the idea of the around-the-world race is just, like, uh, crazy. That's Jules Verne. It's literally yeah. Jules Verne. <laughs> What a what a like crazy hilarious idea. There's so many things that I love in this chapter, like that he basically just has a fanny pack with him, and he's like not. Of course, it's Nergal, so you know whatever he has certain uh, capacities beyond our Abilities, capacity, yeah, right? right? And also like he likes to be hung hungry and have mm -hmm. that like starvy crazy feeling. <laughs> um, but uh, but that he has a fanny pack, that he has a tent and a lantern, yeah. and his sleeping roll in some stove thing or something that like that is. Awesome. Neat. <laughs> well, I was just thinking about the running uh, just in lieu of our conversation is that it's a primitive form of getting around. Right. But when done on Mars, it's a completely different form yeah. of running. Yeah. Because you can actually <laughs> run around the planet. You can run in a way that you can't run on Earth because of the gravity, because of the size that you are. Nergal is like whatever. He's like eight feet tall or something like that. Right. Because he's born on Mars. Um, because of all all sorts of things that you can do on Mars as a runner that you could never do on Earth. So that running itself becomes a new technology mm -hmm. in a certain sense. Yeah, right. Yeah, right. Um, that, and that Mars becomes, in a certain way, the vehicle for your running um, because it's all one yeah. system. Yeah. It's not you running on the planet. It's you and the planet running together. Like you exert a gravitational force on the planet every time you take a step. It's a minute one, but it's it it's it happens, right? And here it's a completely different relationship on Mars. Right? Yeah, right, right. So, so the formula is different. The in, so it's a kind of entanglement. This is another like interesting embodiment, right? Because I I think that that you just sort of said the thing that is so interesting about the chapter is this movement between um, uh, is this movement between thinking about oh oh this is just like a basic human capacity right you know something that has been part of like being a human being like since you know pre homo sapiens or mm -hmm. whatever right mm -hmm. running um, 
But also here, it's so clear that this is this embodied practice, lungampa, running as meditation or prayer, thinking of it as like um, Zen meditation, um, also thinking of it as part, and this is the very beginning of the chapter, right. part of the areophany. I mean, so, uh, you know, it's, it's also a way of like being, right? And in a kind of like complicated way of, you know, um, being in an experience, right? That sort of meditative yeah. way of being in the experience without reflecting on the experience. Um, but then also, yeah, so the reason that they can run around Mars is not only the Mars gravity, but also certain evolutionary things that have happened within like what a human being is that mm-hmm. allows for this kind of extraordinary running, mm-hmm. that great like stride that we've seen in the previous books getting worked out. Um, so there's a sort of then we get the idea that like thinking about this as just human or like a basic human quality or a primitive human quality or a primitive human ability like we have to become sort of skeptical about that because of course it's taking place you know uh, in bodies that are not like our bodies yeah uh, and on an entirely different planet on a different planet Part of the Arianophany, as Martian gravity was integral to it, what the human body could achieve in two-fifths the pull it had evolved for was a euphoria of effort. One ran as a pilgrim, half-worshipper, <laughs> half-god. A religion with quite a few adherents these days, loners out running around. Um, yeah, uh, so it's, yeah, it's this scientific religion. <laughs> it's this, like, embodied... Art for art's sake. Art for art's sake, right. Um, it was worship or meditation or oblivion. I mean, and here I guess, like, so that we should also think, like, uh, so Nergal, last time out, trying to, you know, be an eco-poet, right. grow things, mm-hmm. he sees a marmot in this chapter, mm-hmm. and it gets sad, and sad. It gets eaten um, by, a, <laughs> by a lynx. By a lynx. <laughs> um, you know, uh, the sort of, uh, so here Nergal, rather than, like, searching Mm -hmm. is uh just being immersed in experience or immersed in doing or something something like that but that idea that he's also it's worship or meditation or oblivion Mm -hmm. and like oblivion is not exactly the same as the kind of um it's not exactly the same as a meditative state it's more like needing to force something out yeah right well he's running from something it seems like in a certain way and in like you know in some ways a a worshipful purposelessness and in some ways just like you know i don't know needing to like be stretching his body until he actually can't have any thoughts at all yeah right yeah you know like i mean there's something that's a little you know that attachment to like being starving i mean i guess there's like an asceticism there there's a monkishness there but there's also a little bit of like a kind of um you know not really being able to like love yourself or be okay with yourself oh i was gonna yeah (laughs) yeah but it's all but i was gonna say the opposite like almost a solipsism of like just oh or being overly involved with yourself being overly involved with yourself like i mean your yourself his self here has has collapsed from his like ego to his body like his ego and his body have collapsed into one thing in a certain way and in that sense he sort of you know withholding himself from the greater martian polity in a way like mm-hmm. he we saw him before like completely reject his political 
what others regard as his political obligations. He stands as a symbol for like a lot of things to a lot of people, and he completely abrogates that. He yeah. refuses to participate in that by participating in the boringness of the government, right? That would be a truly kind of, well, that would be a political act right. or, or right. to act politically. Here, he decides, he has decided like, first the eco-poetry thing, like, oh, maybe I can do this and create my own little world and here he's sort of even given up on that. Although at times, one thing that he's doing mm. is finding routes for, he's finding the new Nergalweg. Yeah. Nergalweg, I guess it would be. Um, the new Nergalway around the Earth, around the Mars to um, win the race, right? But that is a kind of, that again is like he's winning it for himself. So in that yeah. sense, he's like inscribing the world or circumscribing the world, like he's writing himself around the world in a way. Um, yeah. And as I mean, as you pointed out before, that's another like the, that thing that you were saying about gravity, right? Um, mm -hmm. Gravity is a two-way street, isn't that what you said? Mm -hmm. uh, but but also also as he's finding his way. I mean, the reason it says the reason that he. Um, uh, has been able to uh, win the races is because he has this root finding ability, which is a kind of intuitive capacity. Right. Right? It doesn't seem to be, uh, it doesn't seem to be like something that is um, fully at the level of like awareness for him, right? And and in fact, we learn mm. um, uh, uh, the Nirgalveg was considered uh, by many fell runners to be in the nature of a mystical mm -hmm. achievement, full of counterintuitive extravagance. Um, which, you know, so we have this interesting picture of him finding the route that somehow both the shortest route and is pursued by some kind of knowledge that's not like, you know, rising to the level of like explicit knowledge, but also uh, uh, it's both shortest and also takes a counterintuitive path mm -hmm. to. So in that there is this kind of sense of his attachment to his entanglement with Mars itself, you know, here rather than as like the symbol or the icon of it as like, you know, they want him to be for like political purposes here. It's like this, you know, his, his mind and body are just entangled mm -hmm. with the planet. Mm -hmm. um, but there is something about that, like image of him just like, you know, now I'm going to run and I'm going right. like, to train really hard for these races. There's something that's like hard not to see it as, um, you know, just like super self-absorbed mm -hmm. in an activity that like you know clearly we're meant to take seriously the spiritual dimension Absolutely. of it but it also is like yeah you're running a race around the planet and you also really want to win too there's a dialectic <laughs> there i mean you can't you know it's it's a you know um it, both are both are true at the same time i think like to from one perspective it's it's very narcissistic from another perspective it's it's this holy mystical experience and for like the the idea that he that his conscious that that this, his ability to find the way isn't rising to the level of consciousness uh it looks mystical to others but they never saw him driving around the surface of mars no, right, with right. coyote since he was like 12 years old right, right? um he he's done this is who he is his entire life he's always remember back in green mars he sees like a uh, a uh, a landscape and he says i want to run it you know mm -hmm. he's always wanted to run around mars so this is in certain sense you know it is literally who he is it is like an admission of his ego in a certain way of like who he wants to be of his kind of uh, ideal his ideal image of himself as 
Nergal the runner, right? And, and of what a you know Mar, a Mars a Mars born human is mm-hmm. too, because the the running and the sort of pattern of you know the Boulder Ballet yeah. is like one of the first things that we, um, and most explicit like forms of like adaptation right. that we see the first hundred do and and. Um, Good old uh, art, art learning, yeah. <laughs> learning to do the Boulder Ballet, but then in in Nergal, like also his bo- his body is you know his body is born like born to do this kind of running. It's a true attunement to the planet itself. Like it's a true like Martianness. Yeah, uh, right. To Plan- be able to right, do this. Planetariness. And the other thing that I would yeah planetariness. The other thing I would say about it is that you know a race like this is just not really possible on Earth because of the radical different climates and the ocean the oceans. Big oceans that we have. Um and so uh with because Mars has this giant northern ocean and nothing in the south so you can like actually literally run around the equator there uh so it, it was something just not even feasible on earth they do call it a circumnavigation right yeah uh a 21,000 mm. kilometer circumnavigation but you know that on earth is has to happen over the ocean or the sky you can't run across the the land bridge is gone the- <laughs> What? We got rid of our we're, land. We're bridge. stuck here? We're stuck here. Uh, there's no ice in the Arctic <laughs> anyway. But it's it's interesting also that there's that kind of um like another way in which I, I think there's such a nice kind of um push pull between this sort of sense that you know that we describe I think not totally accurately as an integration with nature. Mm-hmm. I think your sort of like attunement or like uh, you know, living in a kind of planetary being is much closer to it because this is about like pushing us away from thinking about a kind of like, you know, nature's out there and the human is over here sort of opposition. But I love that um, early on in the chapter, we get him um, running down um, into a canyon, down a set of steps. Mm-hmm. And then we get this like, uh, really interesting and lovely description of the work uh people are doing to essentially make uh trails and mm-hmm. staircases up and down these like extraordinary canyons yeah uh what page is that on? on 454 at the bottom of the page um so he's he's like running down this these steps 300 steps or something like that um cliffside trail making was an art a lovely form of work that Nergal had joined from time to time, helping to move cut rocks with a crane to wedge them into position on top of the step below. Hours in a belay harness, pulling on the thin green lines with gloved hands, guiding big polygons of basalt into place. The first trail builder Nergal had met had been a woman, constructing a trail along the finback of the Garion Montes, the long ridge on the floor of Ayas Chasma. He had helped her all of one summer down most of the ridge. She was still in Marinara somewhere, constructing trails with her hand tools and high-powered rock saws and pulley systems with super strong line and glue bolts stronger than the rock itself, painstakingly assembling a sidewalk or staircase from the surrounding rock. Some trails like miraculously helpful natural features, mm. others like Roman roads, others still with a pharaonic or Incan massiveness, huge blocks fitted with hairline precision across boulder slopes or large grand chaos. It's just such a like, um, you know, back to that vision that Maya has when she's looking at the Roman aqueduct in um, Provence. Mm, and yeah. she says, like, we need we need work like this. Mm-hmm. We need work that we do with our hands. You know, mm-hmm. this idea of the thing that is both 
like grand and purposeful, you know, made by hand and yet like at this impressive scale. There's just something that like the simplicity of the idea of like, okay, so people are living on this planet that has like really deep chasms and boulder fields and like how do they start and now people can get around outside without wearing walkers. You're not gonna have to be driving everywhere. How are but, people going to get around? How are they going to walk? But it's also ar- stairs. It's also architecture that is complementary of the natural landscape itself, right? In, it's in not... some cases, and then in some cases, grandiose, right? Well, but that's but th- that again goes with the grandiose nature of what the Martian landscape looks like, like these like these these mountains and ravines that are like even bigger than on Earth or whatever, just like completely insanely outsized proportionally out, right, outside right. in terms of scale, right? That. Um, because of the unique qualities of Mars, they can look different and and not Earth-like, but specifically Martian uh, in their kind of grandiosity. Right. Uh, although, I mean, it does say with pharaonic or Incan massiveness or like Roman roads. I mean, I'm just thinking all, right, all, you, yeah. all I'm saying is <laughs> that I think that there's a way in which like um, we could imagine that in some case, in some cases, the stairs are, are actually quite discreet in the way in which like, you know, when you go to a national park in the yeah. united states like they try to make mm, like mm. the paths or mm-hmm. whatever you know like not Out interrupt your and, view yeah, right <laughs> um but then some of them are obviously like have a something of a sort of sculptural quality or a massive quality or monumental quality um but it's still just stairs it's like ways for people to get around from place to place yeah but the and the pharaonic and the incan also though allude to a past that we can't figure out how they did that right like like it, it has a, a the mystery of slaves. the past. Well, yeah, slaves. <laughs> Actually, they're saying now the the pyramids were like a big beer festival or something like that. But um, in any event, like the uh, and where there's beer, just there like are no slaves. These this mysterious, <laughs> well, these uh, uh, these mysterious like. Um, you know, how did they do that way yeah, in the past? Yeah, yes. And somehow, like, being on Mars, we're able to redo what they did in the past. Um, we're, we're living in this kind of, like, weird tempor- temporality that we're in the future, but also, like, um, reliving the great mysteries of the, of the ancient past. Uh, that just reminds me, this is a, a detour, but uh, my sister and I were in uh, New York a couple of weeks ago, uh-huh. um, and we were walking through Central Park, uh, and... Uh, we were walking past Cleopatra's Needle, and mm. I was like, oh, you know, we should go up and look at it. I, you know, I feel like I've never, like, walked up and actually looked at it. Um, <laughs> and then we got up there, and we were both like, wait, this is actually an Egyptian obelisk? <laughs> because its effect there is just as one of these, like, stupid, like, you know, late 19th, early 20th century, like, you know, I'm a really rich guy, right. and I want to, like, you know, build a, you know, here's my, t- it's Andrew Carnegie's tomb, and right. it's got an obelisk on it, or right. whatever. And there's something that's, like, so hilarious, and of course it is, actually, it was, like, a gift from, you know, a Carnegie, or, mm-hmm. you know, one of those, like, evil robber barons, mm-hmm. um, but that it's also this, like, you know, an ancient obelisk dug up by Romans and revised by Romans and then randomly, like, located in Central Park. Hilarious. Citi- it, was so, it was so hilarious to think, like, yeah. This... Citizen Kane. Yeah, right. Exactly. The exactly. Loot of it, the world. It's the real thing. <laughs> I mean, yeah, just like, uh, whatever. Very funny to me. Very funny. But I love, I mean, I guess this is actually, like, a good part of why I love the staircases here. 
is because part of what they are is functional right. too, yes, right? You right. know, and about thinking, even if the scale is large, they're still about thinking about like how are humans on foot getting from place to place, and and you know, like what the extraordinary diversity of like the like little landscapes on Mars, like is also becoming accessible to mm-hmm. human beings. Um, yeah. Anyway, I just, I love, I really like that part of this chapter. Yeah. That kind of like, all of a sudden we have to think about like, yet again, this is all being made, you know? It can be experienced as this, like, wa- as wild. Right. It's all being made. Right. Right. And tamed, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. The, um, so he's running and he's going to a uh, one of his caches. So just like Coyote, right? He has uh, learned the... Um, skill and necessity of like hiding caches of food all over the all over the planet and he gets to it and it's there's been a you know a landslide so now he's out of food for like days and he's got to keep running and his his uh, body starts eating his muscles and um uh it's really you know it's i never feel like he's in that much danger but um at the same time uh it's kind of harrowing because he's describing accurately kind of what his body is doing to yeah, him. Yeah, yeah. Um, and all he has to eat are wild onions, which I just think like, oh, you yeah. must be so nauseated. Gross. Pine, <laughs> pine nuts and wild onions. Um, and um, auto-cannibalism gave every object a sharp edge tinged with glories, the whiteness shining out of things as if reality itself were going translucent, right? And so he sees, again, he sees the marmot on uh, 457 mm. and it gets eaten by a lynx. And then on 459, he runs into this bizarre feral hunting ritual. Uh, and his first vision of that is um, he thinks he's hallucinating. He stumbled across a shallow depression over a knob between two house-sized boulders. Then in a flash of white, a naked woman was standing before him, waving a green sash. The white and the green. Mm-hmm. He stopped abruptly. He reeled, stunned at the sight of her, then concerned that the hallucinations had gotten so out of hand. But then, but there she stood, as vivid as a flame, blood streak splattering, spattering her bl- breasts and legs, waving the green scarf silently. Then other human figures ran past her and over the next little knob, going where she pointed, or so it seemed. She looked at Nergal, gestured to the south as if directing him as well, then took off running. Her lean white body flowing like something visible in more than three dimensions, strong back, long legs, round bottom, already distant, the, grief, the green scarf flying this way and that as she used it to point. And then three antelope. He, suddenly he saw three antelope ahead, moving over a hillock to the west, silhouetted by the low sun. Ah, hunters. They're like hunting antelope. Yeah. By running after them. Yeah, with but like bows and arrows and like, uh, what do you call them? Rocks. Bolos. Bolos, right, right. So crazy. I know. I, you know, I was thinking the sort of, um, uh, like the diversity of like human life ways on Mars. We've talked about this so many times, but I just like, that's something that like, I, I love every time you have that unexpected encounter, you know, right. through it, through any one of these characters' eyes with like, oh, and here's another way that people are living. <laughs> yeah. Um, and this is such an interesting, like, um, yeah, they're just like so many, there's so many questions in here about, um, you know, how, what kind of life practice is this? Like, how do we, how do we think about like, um, the set of like desires and conceptions of communal life that these people um, embody and are living out. You know, they also, like Nergal in this phase, are um, uh, 
have a certain aesthetic quality. They like to be hungry, mm-hmm. you know, so that they enjoy their food more. Mm-hmm. I mean, and, and thus making sort of a virtue out of um, what's probably necessity, right? That is, they're not, if they're ma- getting their food by hunting. Oh, right, yeah. There's always going to be a kind of well, unevenness in that. It's funny, though, that <clears throat> it's a virtue out of a necessity that's also a complete choice yes exactly exactly <laughs> it's a whole commitment to this choice right yeah yeah they're ra- they have a very particular way in which they're raising children oh right that's the coolest part yeah um oh their houses are amazing the whole so it's just it's such a like um you know uh what is it like so one they're the kind of like the you know they they call the the woman who's leading the hunt or the Diana, the Diana right? yeah. Um, and the whole green scarf thing and also the being naked thing, mm-hmm. you know, there's as if there were references to like, you know, some kind of like ancient, like, you know, uh, way of life. Although it doesn't actually yeah. seem to be particularly referential no. in any way. Like they're a weird combination of like, uh, you know, of, um, what? you know kind of like primitivist right and they seem to like they're they're like living in like a basic human way and they just like love to like eat that antelope flesh yeah, and yeah, stuff yeah. um but there's a real question of like whether they actually know what they're doing or and not it, right it's totally lifestyle <laughs> too right you know like because at one point he says it seemed like they weren't that successful all the time like they there was a lot of failure there right well because, um, i mean and also not to mention like they're hilariously they, they're like let's lead a hunter gatherer life on a terraformed planet right. where you know we're hunting genetically modified species of whom there probably are not all that many and also a a planet where money doesn't exist anyway essentially i mean like yeah exactly we're we're, we're, we're refusing your filthy lucre (laughs) (laughs) and then they go into town it reminded me of the fire festival basically of just like kind of like completely (laughs) aestheticized like Super high, only a choice that a hyper privileged person who's in complete yeah, safety yeah, could yeah, make yeah. to literally put themselves in danger. But at the same time, it's really cool. Right, right. I yeah. Oh, I have so many. So I feel like we should read the. Oh, and then they go into town and like the guy is a total asshole. He's a it's total like into a, asshole. Oh yeah, you want to fight? I'm that's cooler what, than you are. That's what made me think of the fire festival. Right, is that these rich assholes like just thinking that they're like. <laughs> cool or smart or like better than anybody and it's like you just chose to do this guy like right right you're totally picturing like uh, mo- like yeah. uh white trust fund kids with absolutely dreadlocks. yeah yeah yeah, yeah, exactly. yeah. Uh, uh trustafarians trustafarians I uh but I, I feel like we should read uh the um the end of the hunt with the dam i yes, just that's like so that cool. the oh di- my god the diamond thing what a i mean you know, as I've said before, I feel very ambivalent about the idea of a movie or serial television show being made about any books that I truly love. Yes. And I probably couldn't actually watch a filmed version of these. I'm I'm with you on this now at this point. I'm a convert because I think movies are bad. Yeah, I just I, I feel like it could never it could never be what the books are. As a film scholar, I am making the declaration movies are bad, guys. But good lord would I love to see this. I mean it's so it's so awesome it's like so like you know just whatever um uh okay so in 461 uh the antelope trotted up canyon into this primeval forest of course uh headed south and with a few happy hoots the hunters followed them darting past one huge trunk after another um and and we're in this like territory of these huge sequoias right right. like huge trees. trees 
Uh, then the Sequoia Towers became more scattered, as at the edge of a skyscraper district, till there were only a few left, and looking between the trunks of the last of the behemoths, Snurgal again hauled up short. On the other side of a narrow clearing, the canyon was blocked off by a wall of water. A sheer wall of water filling the canyon right to the rim, hanging suspended over them in a smooth, transparent mass. Reservoir Dam. Recently, they had begun building them out of transparent sheets of diamond lattice sunk in concrete foundation. Nergal could see this one running down both canyon walls across the canyon floor, a thick white line. The mass of water stood over them like the side of a great aquarium, turbid near the bottom, weeds floating in dark mud. Above them, silver fish as big as the antelope. flitted next to the clear wall and then receded into dark crystalline depths. At this point, just like, what? Oh, it's so good. The three antelope pronged nervously back and forth before this barrier, the doe and the fawn following the quick turns of the buck as the hunters closed in on them. The buck suddenly leaped away and crashed its head against the dam with a powerful thrust of its whole body, antlers like bone knives, thwack. Nergal froze in fear. Everyone froze at this violent gesture, so ferocious as to be human. But the buck bounced away and staggered. Um, anyway, just like, and then at the end of the, after uh, killing the buck, the exultant hunter slams his fist against right. the clear, hard membrane of the dam. Well, oh, man. This is the first, so like, bef- while all this is happening, we haven't, no one has spoken any words. They've been hooting and things like this. So you're really, as a reader, you're you're really in a, in a little bit of a state of confusion and wonder. Um the woman with the green scarf was nowhere to be seen. Another hunter, a man wearing only ne- only necklaces. Love it. Trust- <laughs> Classic Trustafarian move. <laughs> Tilted his head back and howled, shattering the strange silence of the work. He danced in a circle, then ran at the clear w- wall of the dam and threw his spear straight at it. The spear bounced away. The exultant hunter ran up and slammed his fist against the clear, hard membrane. A woman hunter with blood on her hands turned her head to give the man a contemptuous look. Quit fooling around. Um, you don't have to worry. These dams are a hundred times stronger than they need to be. <laughs> it's stupid to tempt fate. It's amazing what superstitions survive in fearful minds. <laughs> You're a fool. Luck is as real as anything else. Luck, fate, car. That's my impression of yeah, this guy. Yeah, he's I'm, a, he's I'm a with douchebag. You. He's a douche. He sucks. Don't like him at all. Um, but you know these aren't literally feral people they still have language right but yes. we haven't seen that yet yeah, until yeah. this like you know ridiculous sort of conflict of like i'm gonna throw my spear at the future dam made of diamond lattice it just like, like the sort of what you know the kind of um what a funny thing your brain has to do in order to say like we're just behaving in the most natural way for humans to behave at the same time as like you're standing yeah. in a uh terraformed forest of giant sequoia trees and above your head there are fish swimming around the size of antelopes (laughs) in a giant outdoor aquarium that's like the three gorges dam was like an aquarium or something like that um in a completely terraformed planet i just i think that the like Part of what is so great to me about this is that, like, here we are in, like, this is just this 
utterly science fictional. This is why it would be a bad movie, right? Right, yeah, but right. It's this utterly science fictional space, and yet our approach to it and the way that we feel about it and the way that we experience the scene is so deeply connected to these details of human living that like we we're taken by surprise again and again by being by reading a science fiction novel you know right, like yeah, that right. you can like you know you find yourself all of the things that you know you think about Nergal and what he's doing like you have to remind yourself well this is a person who is substantively different from me not only because he's like a runner and in good shape but also because he's like you know biologically different from me um and the spaces are evoked so beautifully that it's easy to think like oh here i am and just like imagining this like grand natural space uh yeah, I just I, I think the way that that throughout I mean throughout these books the way that that works is I think extraordinary and this is just one of those moments of like yeah being totally caught off guard in the middle of having all of these like interesting and complicated thoughts about like what's natural and what's human what's technological you know what's made and what grows and then here you are like beneath this like utterly crazy dam and you're actually having to like put your mind into a very weird place to sort of imagine this at all. Yeah, it makes me think, too, of, like, the kind of difference within... Oh, let me... Well, I was watching Manufacturing Consent um, the other day. (laughs) As one does. My my boy, Noam Chomsky. And they... uh, Talking about the East Timorese um, situation and just the the way that those people still, like, lived in the 1960s and 70s was, you know, completely egalitarian society, totally, like you know what we would call primitive right but everyone happy (laughs) everyone kind of like knowing their role in the world and and um like living a little bit like the way that these people seem to imagine themselves to be Mm. living um and then completely like you know decimated by the you know by global imperialist capitalism Mm -hmm. and stuff like that um but that like just seeing this and reading it as alien or foreign or whatever is, you know, what we would expect from ourselves. But at the same time, like it's easy to imagine other people live in completely different ways all over the right world, just in the city of Chicago. Um, they find ways to, to do it. And these people have sort of invented a way these hunter gatherers have invented a way for themselves. But one that doesn't feel like for them is, is organic. Like, um, they have their own sort of systems, rules, norms, all that kind of stuff. Right, right, right. I mean, and you know, the sort of when we um, often when we think about like uh, the variety of life ways on Earth, you know, part of the thought that we have are well, some people live under modernity, and right. some people live under these pre-modern right, conditions, right? right? Um, and that is, of course, a like. Way, I mean, you know, and that's that sort of version of what global and even development is about, that, like, some people live in, in the past. Right. right. Um, you know, which is an inheritance quite specifically of, of colonialism. Um, that can also then become an anchoring point uh, to the sort of fantasy that uh, if one – what it would mean to live more naturally would yeah. be to live primitively, yeah. right? Um, you know, close to nature is primitive. I mean, it's such a complicated kind of. Uh, I mean, and I, you know, I think here, like, it, it's allowed to be complicated between this sort of um, 
you know, really mistake it, mistaking something about, like, um, temporal relations to think that, like, you know, uh, there is something that's called the primitive that right. one can go back to and that one sees glimmers of it in certain kinds of, like, you know, in the lifeways of certain indigenous people or, you know, the untouched in the whatever. Um, but here, like, on Mars, like, you know, we have this also, it's this vision of, like, there's so much possibility here. There's so much possibility precisely because um, there isn't the imperative to uh, struggle to reproduce yourself under mm. exploitative conditions right. or else you'll starve or die. Right. Um, I.e. get a job yeah. is what you're talking about. <laughs> that is what I'm talking about. You are not wage, forced to get a I'm job. I'm talking about wage labor. Yep. Um, and, yeah, um, and, and the... Yeah, it's well, right the, that there's the, something very serious about the way in which these people who, like, you know, in the end, by the time we get to the scene in town, I like, I don't like these men. No, I definitely no, don't. No, uh, The women might be fine. Yeah. But, um... Uh, the men are a necessary evil, <laughs> as they are today. And really necessary? That's a question. A big question, um, yeah. But, but at the same time, like, they are actually, like, you know, there's a real seriousness here to, like, letting us see, like, a whole way of life. You know, mm -hmm. I love their houses. The disc house on um, 467. Do not love it as much as Nergal's boulder house. Sure. Obviously. Or the bamboo uh, apartment uh, building. Yes, I right. like that, too. Yeah. Um, a disc house, they called it. Uh, it was open-walled, round-roofed structure, a disc house. Nergal walked through it admiring the design. The foundation was a round slab of concrete polished to a finish like marble. The roof was also round, held up by a simple T of interior walls, a diameter and a radius. In the open semicircle were kitchen and living space on the other side, bedrooms and bathroom. The circumference now open to the air could be closed off in inclement weather by clear walls of tenting material drawn around the circle like drapes. And then they have like a storage space and then basically like a kind of a cold cellar in the basement where they put their preserves yeah. as soon as uh, immediately i'm won over by any oh, yeah. any uh preserve well, and also their communal <laughs> their communal preserves so they're like linked sort of um there are linked tribes whatever who use these spaces whenever they need them right so they're, they're also just, like they're, caches. they're nomadic yeah. yeah so they're caches so anytime you have at one point there's an overabundance of fruit so they make it all into preserves and they store it there for maybe themselves but maybe whoever yeah. comes comes later the house itself it. reminds me of like the kind of L.A. Uh, modern, like, 50s, 60s, like, super cool. I don't know mm. who the designers are, but, like, some of those houses that just, you know, are all windows, mm. all the, the yeah, circle yeah. around. Yeah. And, like, um, uh, fireplaces that are that are all, like, stone and, you know, it just very cool, <laughs> like, 50s, 60s uh, L.A. design. Yeah, like, um, it's like a modernist version of a yurt, totally. too. Right? Yeah, yeah, right. Yeah. Um, and then uh, the the children aspect right um mm -hmm. on page 468 um they walked a long distance every day and during their big hunts they often ended up in terrain that would have been a disaster to run in terrain so rough that it was about four or five days is this the right thing yeah yeah um four or five days before they all managed to find each other again at the next at the next disc house in its orchard. Since Nergal didn't know where these were, he had to stick close to one or another of the group. Once they had him take the four children in the group on an easier route across Lune Planum's uh, cratered terrain, and the children told him what direction to take every time they had to make a choice, and they were the first to reach the next disc, <laughs> disc house. The kids loved it. Often they were consulted by the larger group as to when, when they should leave a disc house. Hey, you kids, is it time to go? 
They would answer yes or no very firmly within seconds in concert. Once two adults got in a fight and afterward they had to present their cases to the four kids who, de who decided against one of them. The butcher woman explained to Nergal, we teach them, they judge us, they're hard but fair. So good. This is basically how I want my classroom to run. <laughs> oh, you don't want your students to judge you. Well, they do already, yeah. well, silently. Yes. They exactly. just, I just don't let them talk to me about it. Uh, it's such an interesting... Um, Maybe if there were more of me than there were of them, yes. I would let them pass judgment. Yeah. They have a support group of other adults to be like, hey, those kids don't know what the hell they're talking about. I mean, it's it's like a, you know, it's a classic utopian topic, which is like, not only like, how do you, you know, the, the raising and education right. of children, um, like, and what do you do with the, what do you do with the family, right? Commu you know, where does communal life come from? Well, communal life will, will have to come from not keeping people within family units. Um, but I but I also think a utopian topic is like, what do you do with age difference, you know, um, and that the idea that not only that um, children come to a place where they are able to make decisions for themselves um, uh, far sooner that like than is the norm in our culture, um, but also that like children play active social roles, active roles in the social fabric, you know, that I um I love the way that we get that here just in this like super miniature form. Like this is actually like very complicatedly thought out. Mm -hmm. uh, there's a great part in, you haven't read Aurora yet, no. right? There's a great part in Aurora. Um, We've been over this. I haven't read Aurora. There's okay. a great part in Aurora that has this, just like this moment. I won't, I, I'm not going to say what it is because I really want you to read it. Um, and because it's like amazing and weird, but you have people who have like made a choice to like live in a way sort of modeled on, I, I think like Inuit life or like, you know, um, uh, and they have a very particular child rearing practice that is both like fucked up and amazing at mm -hmm. the same time. Anyway, that I just think, uh, I think for all the, our fans who are wondering what we're going to do next, I think we should probably <laughs> read Aurora just to get you to shut up about it. Oh, come on. I'm kidding. Uh, I'm just teasing. I'm one of these asshole men. Remember? Uh, I, I know. I know. Um, I've known you for years, but that could be a good idea uh, because everyone's also really curious what we're, what we're going to do next, Hillary. Well, we're going to do the Martians we gonna... when we're done with this, right? Right. Because well, neither gonna... of us have read that. I haven't read the Martians. Stan said we should read the Martians. Yeah. We I'm also are going to talk to Stan. Okay, so the Martians will be next, then maybe Aurora. Um, okay. You'll just really like that part, Matt. I'm going to like the book. <laughs> the book is amazing. I told you I taught it this quarter. You did. It just like, it was so... Yeah. Yeah, it's so great. That's very... I'm jealous that you get to teach what you uh, want to teach. Uh, yeah, nobody pays any attention to me. I know, that's really good. Yeah. Well. I just have to teach what I'm given. Um, so... Uh, the jerk men, <laughs> they go to a hostel, they go into kind of town and they get in a fight with some other bros. Uh, they're probably anybody who's fighting on the streets is just a bro and you should pay no attention to them because they're just stupid people. Um, and then they sleep in and they go to some cliffs to do some, the Kasai Fjord to do some windsurfing mm -hmm. and, um, I mean, not windsurfing, but like wind like literal flying, wind surfing yeah. like flying in bird suits this is the first crazy time we bird see the bird suits, suits right yeah um and the bird suits where's the description of the bird suits uh, bottom of 473 of course at any time howlers could take the situation off scale okay duh, duh, duh. 
as Nergal ascended, he saw that uh, he's in a blimp glider. So yeah. that's where you and me would be in a blimp glider, but, just like hanging out. Uh, I'm not hanging on. Doing into these <laughs> bird suits. You could keep that. Most of the flyers wore bird suits of one kind or another. It looked like he was flying <clears throat> in a flock of wide, wide ringed wide-winged flying creatures which resembled not birds but something more like flying foxes or some mythic hybrid like the griffin or pegasus bird humans the bird suits were of uh, several different kinds imitating in some aspect some respects the configurations of different species albatross eagle swift lammergeier each suit encased its flyer in what was, in effect, an ever-changing exoskeleton, which responded to interior pressure from the from the flyer's body to take and then hold positions or make certain movements, all reinforced in proportion to the pressure exerted inside them so that a human's muscles could flap the big wings or hold them in place against the great torque of the wind's onslaughts, meanwhile keeping the streamlined helmets and tail feathers in the proper positions." Suit AIs helped flyers who wanted help, and they could even function as automatic pilots. But most flyers preferred to do the thinking, thinking for themselves and controlled the suit as a Waldo, exaggerating many times the strength of their own muscles. Again, one of these just amazing, like, uh, the sort of, like, collapse of, like, the technological and, like, the athletic or something like right. that, you know, Um uh, this is this, you know, this is totally a sort of a cyborg thing. Mm -hmm. And yet having this kind of like super intense sort of quasi primal human experience, having an experience of the thing that you can have a dream about, but you can't actually experience yourself. Yeah. Um, and back to the, you know, the prologue with the idea of the super fast, uh, the super fast space travel. And here we have this like, you know, purely for pleasure, purely for aesthetic purposes, art for art's sake. Yeah, yeah. Maybe also meditative, maybe kind of sporty yeah. <laughs> practice. Yeah. I wonder, like, if going back to the 19th century analogy, a analogies, like, there's ballooning, which Nergal is doing a version of. Right. Um, Mount, the, mountain climbing. I mean, you know, they were climbing. obsessed with writing about Mount... They, the 19th century, was yeah. obsessed with writing, you know, the experience right. of... Yeah. Um, trains and then um uh the attempt to fly finally by the wright brothers what orville and <laughs> wilbur i think that's right or is that the redenbacher guy orville redenbacher orville and wilbur right. Wright. i think so cool yeah i learned um that's but, history but in terms of uh but yeah I, but but no but but yeah but flying in winged suits is very cool yeah well and a, and a call back to uh william fort uh, uh yes. that like para surfing yeah. gliding uh jumping off cliffs and surfing <laughs> i'm losing my words crazy. but you know what i mean so then uh, he sees the the diana and here we go here we Hillary. go man. are you ready for this yep who this I, is going to turn out to be? I think you should read the description of her in that, on the what, bottom of 475. Then soaring up? Uh, I was going to go with the Nergal watch her okay. face as she talked. You want me to read it? Where is it? On bottom of 475. I can, oh, 475. Okay. So the, the Diana flies past him and then, uh, you know, they, they do a flirtatious breakfast. <laughs> it was mid-afternoon and he was famished. Sure. Hey, baby. Fly here often? <laughs> 
Nergal watched her face as she talked. Careless, smart, confident. A Minoan. Dark skin, dark eyes, aquiline nose, dramatic lower lip. Mediterranean ancestry, perhaps. Greek, Arabic, Indian. As with most of the Yonsei, it was impossible to tell. She was simply a Martian woman with Dorsa Brevia English and that look in the eye as she watched him. Ah, yes. How many times in his wandering had it happened? A conversation turning at some point, and then suddenly mm -hmm. he was flying with some woman in the long glide of seduction, the courtship leading to some bed or hidden dip in the hills. Hey, Zoe, the butcher woman said in passing, going with us to the ancestral neck? No, Zoe said. The ancestral neck, Nergal inquired. Boone's neck. Zoe said, the town up on the Polar Peninsula. Ancestral? She's Don, John Boone's granddaughter, the butcher woman explained. <laughs> By way of, Nergal asked, looking at Zoe. Jackie Boone, she said, my mother. Ah. <laughs> Nergal managed to say. He sat back in his seat, the baby he had seen Jackie nursing in, in Cairo. The similarity to her mother was obvious once he knew. His skin was goose pimpling, the hairs lifting from the skin of his forearms. He hugged himself, shivered. I must be getting old, he said. Um, mm -hmm. She yeah. smiled and she, and I mean, I'm going to read the rest. She yeah, smiled yeah. and he saw suddenly that she had known who he was. She had been toying with him, laying a little trap as an experiment, perhaps, or to displease her mother or for some other reason he could not imagine for fun. Now she was frowning at him, looking to, trying to look serious. It doesn't matter, she said. No, he said, for there were other ferals out there. Oh my God. Uh, so what do we, what do we, what do we want to say about? So did we know her name was Zoe? I think we did. Um, I think we knew that her name was Zoe. You know, hundreds of pages back when Jackie first had her, but I'm not I, sure. I, don't I was trying to figure it out, I but remember. I couldn't. I couldn't tell. Um. Yeah, I mean, it's such a, uh, uh, yeah, I mean, so it's like, it's, it's a hilarious scene. It's, yeah. it's a creepy scene. Yeah. Um, it's like a great kind of like um, joking, but also disturbing take on when you realize that the person that you thought that you were flirting with actually something entirely different is going on. <laughs> um but I, I was thinking it's also, it's such an interesting, so again, like we have that whole, you know, one of the things that's happening here is, wow, life extension sure makes things like this weird. Pretty because complicated. It's kind of hard to tell how old people are. And within a, within a certain span of years, it seems like you don't, you know, maybe you have like a few more wrinkles around your eyes, but like you don't look all that different. Um, and then that makes it hard to understand like what your generation, you know, when, when is there like something like generational yeah. difference? Right. Uh, we have the craziness of like, oh, lineage is still being, uh, evoked here. It's a sign um, of prestige still. Like, yeah. Right? Yeah. Right. Everybody knows like who her great granddad is mm -hmm. supposedly. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah. Supposedly. Yeah. Yeah. And then, and then also, I mean, I suppose there's another way in which, um, this has something to do with like um, the kind of forms of motion and temporal, you know, temporal speed up in the chapter, yeah, right? Like what's sure. Nergal's running around Mars doing? It's like kind of trying to keep, I mean, he's running around, but it's, 
it's a way of like keeping himself like in place like literally right like attached to mars or something like that and not going anywhere right yeah running around in a great big circle stasis yeah he's just running in circles and then here and then here at the end he ends up with like you know this moment of shock where he thinks he's going to have you know the encounter right you know you step off the path briefly Mm -hmm. you get back on the path Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. um and then it turns out the person he's been looking at is someone who he is so complicatedly and messed uply entangled Entangled with with, um who also he you know when he knows who it is he's like well of course she looks like jackie that's why i'm attracted to but he's not able to see that in her until he until he knows right right and yeah just before the part i started reading right she was fairly young he judged but her face was sunburned skin lined around the eyes not a youth she had been to the jovian moons she said and had taught at the at the new university in nilo karis and was now running with the ferals for a time 20 m years old perhaps or older hard to tell these days an adult in any case in those first 20 m years people got most of whatever experience was ever going to give them after that it was only a matter of repetition he had met old fools and young sages almost as almost as often as the reverse they were both adults contemporaries and there they were in the shared experience of the present mm. right mm-hmm. and then that shared experience of the present is just completely shattered right it turns out to be an experience of the past because right? history or, yeah. just comes like comes like crashing down on him um, and not just his own personal history, but the history before his history. Yes, yes. Because John Boone, like if I hear that, when I hear that, I'm like, okay, fuck this John yeah. Boone guy. <laughs> like seriously, are we still, it's been a hundred years. Are we still talking about this guy who no one alive has ever met? You know, like only a few people actually knew him. Jackie has this really just deeply unhealthy relationship to his image, right? Which she has passed on to her daughter. Um, and, or granddaughter or daughter whatever like daughter she's daughter she's jackie boone's daughter um and uh and yeah and and she's also inherited from jackie this like just pleasure in manipulating Mm. nergal and like toying with him uh also like not just inherited it like you know Jackie has like told her stories probably like or or she's read stories or she knows things right or yeah I mean and I guess we're only getting it from his point of view here so we don't really know I mean you know maybe she was just like oh that's that famous Nergal right um I that line that you read I didn't pay attention to it earlier uh an adult in any case, in those first 20 M years, people yeah. got most of whatever experience was ever going to give them. And after that, it was only a matter of repetition. Right. Like, why is Nergal having that thought? Like, it, He's tricking himself. Yeah. I mean, he knows, you know, Nadia, for example. Right? I mean. Art. Art. <laughs> Moving to Mars was no repetition. <laughs> Nergal himself going to Earth. That's not a repetition. Yeah. Right? That was right. the most dangerous thing ever. Like, he's doing it because he's tricking himself into, like, um, being That's able to is. sleep with this young girl, right? And like neglect her, like neglect the vast generational difference or whatever. Right. And maybe, and maybe also say to himself, like, um, the fact that I seem to be stuck in this structure of repetition right now, like lit- a literal circular repetition. That's just an effect of like, you know, you stop learning things, yeah. you stop having, exp- but the idea that like you would stop having experiences mm-hmm. after your first 20 M years. Yeah, what a pessimistic, in the worst way, pessimistic account of yeah. living. Yeah. Or that, like, if... and But you can see also well, how... It's nihilistic, right? I mean, it's it's even more than pessimistic. It's, like, nihilistic. It's, like, after those first 20 M years... 
I mean, and if, I, I, I think he is like sort of tricking himself too into saying like, well, this isn't going to mean anything for me. And it's not going to mean anything for right. her. It couldn't be disturbing to her. This to can't be a real have ex- sex with someone much older than her exactly. because she has already had every experience she's going to have. Right. It's it's also interesting though to think like because um, I think we have that you know we have this sort of like veneration of youth and the idea that like once you hit like thirty or forty or you right. know yeah what you know. Uh, Nothing. I mean, I guess that it is the you same idea, change. right? Nothing happens to you or, or whatever. But it's funny to think about that in the context of, like, really long life extension. Yeah. That you would still think, like, you've got about 40 years or whatever it is, um, and, and then nothing will change you, and yeah. yet your life spreads out in front of you. Yeah. And what a particularly depressing thought to have on a world that is changing so insanely rapidly that, yeah. like, in the course of Nergal's life, sequoias have grown. Yeah. You know? It's a very it is a very odd perspective for Nagal to be taking because I feel like, you know, that perspective is the one that definitely that capitalism wants you to have mm-hmm. to lock you in to a specific, you know, form of wage slavery for as long as possible. Right. I mean, and you do get worn out. Yeah. Right? Yeah. To prevent you. Yeah. And once you're worn out, then um, it becomes even more difficult because you're not worn. You're not only worn out, you're worn into the pathways that that you've created for yourself. And so it becomes even more difficult to imagine an alternative um, and uh, try something new or, you know, realize that, hey, or like even realize like, oh, maybe I don't need to eat meat three times a day, like that kind of thing. (laughs) Right. Like I could change radically. one little minor thing about my life that would like have a whole range of knock-on effects about my life, right? Um, right. Just things like that. Like things can, the, the idea that things can change, it's not mere repetition, which, you know, the dominant ideology wants you to imagine that only what you have is what you've got. So that even like when people graduate high school or graduate college, often, to, I mean, this was my experience, like I couldn't imagine what was going to happen after that because like what do I do then? I go get a job? What does that even look like? I don't know what that means, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, and I mean, and I think that has so much to do with, uh, I mean, that has so much to do with the way in which our lives are um, compartmentalized into work, you know, yeah. school and then work life, and then the other part of it, which is familial life, and beyond like the scene of the family, which you're supposed to grow up in one family and then replace it by making another family, Beyond the scene of the family, you know, we have so little, like, cross-generational contact, yeah, you know? Yeah, right. Um, which, which has everything to do with why, you know, when you... Uh, the, feeling, the feeling that, like, uh, people who are, you know, significantly older than you or significantly younger than you couldn't possibly understand you. Mm-hmm. But also with a kind of hopelessness about, like, where does your life go? Mm-hmm. Because, you know, when you're 18 or whatever, like, you're not talking to people who have substantively different experiences from yours in many cases, right? right? But then, of course, there's also that, you know, like the other, you know, the other fantasy bribe from Capital is like, you know, you're going to make it. And right. you're going to have that, like, and then when you're rich, like, either you can, like, you know, like all of those, like, ads for, like, um, you know, investment companies, which show, like, the happy retired couple, like, you know, riding giraffes across the whatever. You know yeah. what I mean? No, like, riding giraffes. You know, I've seen it. Adventure travel. And that fantasy is all about how, like... Um, your hard work, which really just means your wealth, yeah. will buy you 
an ongoing youth. Right. You know, there's yes. like no possibility to be right. like, you know, a happy old person is like a lively young old right. person. Yeah, right, right, you know, right. like, you know, being transfused with the blood of like <laughs> I gotta watch that Theranos documentary. Oh, I know I'm I'm excited. I'm about so it. excited to watch that. She looks just like a psycho. Like her eyes are like so she's terrifying very to fascinating. me. Fascinating. Oh, I can't wait to watch that. I mean in a bad way. Yeah, of course. Yeah. No, yeah. she's you know another great uh, avatar of our like yeah. uh, of the impending yeah. collapse of capitalism. Yeah. Do you ever watch that Bernie Madoff uh Robert De Niro movie? I did not. I thought that was kind of interesting. But anyway. Um, but did you watch the Hulu documentary about the Fire Festival? I didn't watch the Hulu one. I watched oh, the I, Netflix one. I recommend the Hulu one because... You like that one better than the Netflix one? The Netflix one, some of the producers yeah. were some of the people who no, I know. who advertised it. Yeah. Whereas in the Hulu one, uh-huh. because it was made by uh, some independent directors, they actually have somebody who worked for their like advertising, whatever the advertising company that didn't describe itself as an advertising company. Fuck that did Jerry. the promotions. Yeah. Yeah. Um they actually like interview a guy who used to work for them. Uh-huh. So I I think it has this good like um uh, it does some things that are different. The okay. whole thing is like hilarious, and then also this like sick colonialist project. Oh that yeah, is, like uh, just like, so repulsive. I like the Netflix one because it has the guy who was like the older gay right hand man who mm-hmm. was like literally committed to performing fellatio to get the. <laughs> stuff out of the customs or whatever and it's just like what the hell is the matter with you i think like that's what ideology does to you and it's so deeply you know for all the things that are like stupid and totally trivial about it the thing that is interesting is like uh how thoroughly how thoroughly imbued with this specific colonial fantasy that there is such a thing as an empty piece of land yeah, right so yeah. that they were actually like yeah. looking at this island that not only is not empty right and not only has another resort on it but like has a whole bunch of people living on it and oh by the way yeah is part of a country yeah that has laws yeah and like they literally seem to have been so i mean obviously they're stupid and venal and trying to get money out of people but also just like so driven by the idea of like that special like island place yeah um that it like didn't even occur to them that they'd have to pay like customs on the yeah. fucking liquor that they were importing. Yeah. And it, it that really just feels to me like that uh you know, sort of um that particular like kind of colonialist vision of the world is just like still so easy to access. Mm. You know, that you could be standing on a place that was like there are lots of people who live there and like there's a government and law and mm-hmm. all of this stuff and you're like, Oh, I'm on my beautiful private island, yeah. you know? Like, oh my god. Yeah. Was that related to this? Um, uh, yeah. Well, I think maybe we could relate it in terms of like the the feral community itself, like believing that they're, I mean, they are clearly living in a way, right? Yeah. They, they have created a life way for themselves that uh, includes children and systems of food production mm-hmm. and sustenance of not only themselves, but a larger sharing, community yeah. and sharing, yeah. which seems, which is for, for sure utopian, right? Um, also, we do see the way that be, be, that they behave when they encounter other cultures right. and it's ghastly yeah. and, and stupid and venal, right? Yeah. Um, uh and also coming back to the original point or like one of the original points, they are doing this out of choice. Like the, no one, they do not do this uh, as a necessity of subsistence. Mm-hmm. They have chosen this, 
they have actively chosen and constructed this system of necessities, like most utopian communities, right. and and the way that those en end up collapsing uh, oftentimes because people stop choosing that way. Mm -hmm. They're like, I would rather just go to Walmart. Thank you very much. I'd like to <laughs> play my Super Mario Brothers game. And not drive the buggy anymore. And not yeah. drive the buggy anymore. <laughs> or like spend 10 hours on a bicycle generating electricity to make my toast. <laughs> that is a feature of my utopian community. I'm, try I'm trying out some new stuff for my stand-up set at all the utopian communities I'm going to be touring. Anyway, like... Um, there is this kind of still like it does seem colonialist imagination about the things that are going on on Mars, just with the absence of, you know, native laws, mm -hmm. native people, mm -hmm. native governments, whatever the word native means. Mm -hmm. Right. Because it's just it is a virgin territory, like in <laughs> the most literal sense of the word. Yeah. Um, and maybe Nergal, to just to tie it into the very end of this point is convincing himself that not that Zoe is a virgin or something like that, but that nothing that he could do to her or with her would substantively substantively change either him or her. Right. Right. That he is living this fantasy world of literally running in circles for as long as he possibly can. And in fact, he's been doing this for so long that the baby he held in his arms is now 20 <laughs> M years old. So it is this kind of, again, this lack of time, this loss of time that the age extension technology allows, but that also pr puts you in a fantasy world of, you know, no time has passed. Right, right. And, and something about that, like the idea of like... Um being able to be, you know, uh, centered or mindful and also being able to move quickly, you know, his sort of running meditation practice lets you like slip away from history and yeah. also from all of your other entanglements, Everything. all of the entanglements of your, your personal life, your yeah. story. I mean, there's that, I, one of the things I liked about the chapter is that I feel like when you first see the Diana who turns out to be Zoe and it's the green, not only is it the green and the white, but also she's naked. There's a moment in which you think like, who's it going to be? Right. <laughs> right. Hiroko. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Right. I mean, and, and she's streaked with blood, yeah. right? Like she's doing this kind of very right. primitive thing. Right. She clearly seems to be like doing some kind of like, you know, wild, like Veriditas ritual. Yeah. Right? New invented ritual for Mars. Yeah. Uh, and then, you know, no, it's like a beautiful young woman. Right. Like as, as Nergal is always encountering. Hey you man, know? it's tough yeah. to be Nergal. I don't know. It's like, I really, I really like this chapter. I think it's such an interesting, um, I mean, I think you're right. It's like an interstitial chapter. Um, uh, but again, it has a kind of, I mean, not, I guess it's not, it's not melancholy, but there is a sense of, um, uh, there's, there's a sense of like, um, I, again, of Nergal's kind of like, you know, trying to find himself and then always ending up kind of to one side of where he thinks that he is I, yeah i don't i didn't really read it as melancholy um it it it's ecstatic most of the chapter i think is ecstatic mm. like he is in a state of elevated you know is in an, in an in an elevated state of whether it's meditation or oblivion or ecstasy or whatever like he's just living his body right and at the end and his body in the now in the present right um the end of the conversation that he has with zoe 
They're just two people in a shared experience of the present. And the very end, it's just yeah. everything. That illusion is just popped like a bubble. Yeah. The past, the present, the future, they all just spread out for him um, in just a really you know, disturbing way that brings him right back down to earth uh, out of his ecstatic experience. Yeah, right, exactly, and, exactly. And, um, yeah. Yeah, poor Nergal. I mean, you know, <laughs> that's only one moment. Like, he, you know, he'll probably go back to running around the Just earth, running the around Mars over again. over and over like, again. Uh, he seems, you know, that happens to all of us, you know, where we're really going, trucking along pretty good and then, like, you know, something bad happens and reminds us that uh, we're all going to die. It just happens more and more frequently these days. I was going to say, I feel like that happens to me because you are constantly telling me that. Well, I just feel it's my, <laughs> my responsibility to just remind people that, um, you know, yeah, we're in big trouble and we need to do it's something imminent. about it. I know. Um, my students like it when I talk about that, though, for some reason. I think it, it confirms their nihilism and, uh, gives them an overwhelming sense that they can't do anything about it, which I don't want to give them. But at the same time, you know, I feel like my my <laughs> my students this quarter were so um, maybe in a different way because I used to teach a utopian science fiction class that I haven't taught for like six years now. I think um, five or six years, and uh, I felt like this quarter they were so much more rapidly drawn into the kind of questions about what utopia is and, you know, what it, what it means to like, um, uh, what it means to think about difference, what it means to think about the utopian horizon. Uh, you know, the idea that like, um, the future is something that, uh, has been captured for us, but we might be able to like, you know, find other ways to develop mm. a relationship to a different kind of futurity. Anyway, that was just like, so, that stuff felt like really, uh, it was very close to the surface, I felt like, for students this quarter. And I, I think it has to do so much with the sense of like. A ticking actually, clock. Yeah, there's actually this very short timeline, you know, and they're so aware of that. And they, they really want to be able to like have a thought that isn't, you know, panic or right. apocalypse right. or, you know, just like uh, curling up in a ball yeah. or whatever. No, I think one of my classes that I taught two sections of um, mm -hmm. was a, was on cultural studies. And I really grounded it from the very beginning of like, well, this emerges from a Marxist analysis of culture and we have to understand what Marx was saying and also kind of Freudian, like psychoanalytic models as well. So we're going to understand a lot of that stuff. And they were really, I think, um, open to and curious about the way that um, just culture, capitalism, economics, politics are structured uh, and have been structured up until the – in the present moment and in the past, right? Um, and the past actions that have kind of led to where we are now – um, so they're very open to like all those kinds of uh, ideas and um, analyzing the world as it's given to them, mm, right? Mm -hmm. And the idea that you do not have to accept the world as it's given to you. If you learn these ways of analyzing it, you can understand it in a different way than it wants to be understood, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, and uh, they really, uh, even the ones who didn't seem to understand it quite well or maybe not that but like the ones who were seemed to be bored <laughs> liked the class i think yeah. uh just because we d 
did talk about things that are happening today, right now, affecting them. Right, like, right. You know, I could bring in something that happened on Twitter literally the day before and be like, did you guys see this? How does it relate to what we read today? Um, it's I was tweeting or Facebooking about it's never been easier to teach kids Marx because all you have to do is just point to the world. <laughs> I mean, that's always been true. Just flail um, around, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, I was going to say, I feel like sometimes that sense that, like, that sense that they're bored, like, boredom is a, an affective way to manage yeah. taking in stuff that's really hard to yeah, take yeah. in, that's right? What they were, you know? Yeah, that's what yeah. some of the ones who appeared bored were, were doing, I think, yeah. is just, like, it's an overwhelming amount of information yeah. that someone should have told them about in high school. And, uh, I, you know, they just happen to look out and be in my class. Yeah, yeah exactly. Well, and also that, you know, what it feels like to have something that you sort of already knew. Yeah. But weren't sure yeah. that other people knew no, or had that, no word language for. I think that's a, that's the another big thing is like I am actually validating something that they see. Right. That they that they have this inkling and they hear it maybe through Bernie Sanders or somebody that the game is rigged for the rich and, but they don't get a full analysis of that or explanation of that. And then I can come in and say like, no, here are these analytical tools. I will validate that impulse that you are feeling about like the pointlessness of being in college right now and spending, you know, $40,000 a year on it or whatever it is that they're spending. Right. right. Um, I will validate the suspicions that you're having about how, you know, how it could be a different way how it doesn't need to be this way and how you're getting screwed. Um, And I think the fact too, that I speak to them like they're adults and that my classes are not, not useful Mm -hmm. (laughs) in the sense, in the utilitarian sense of like, you know, I, I'm not teaching you how to do a spreadsheet or um, um, market a brand in a certain way. I'm in fact telling you that your PR major might not be the most, you know, ethical major to be having. That I feel bad about in some cases because students who are majoring in PR, first of all, I mean, just between you and me, that shouldn't be a major. Second of all, they're not mean-spirited people. They just want to get a job and they've been told they'd be good at PR. And it's like probably a pretty fun job to have if you are not conscious of the history of the public relations industry, i.e. the propaganda industry. Um, But when you come into my class, you're going to learn about the history of the propaganda industry. And um, that might bum you out about your future career (laughs) prospects. I felt bad about that. But at the same time, I think the students like appreciated it. But I mean, I think it is true that it's not, um, you know, uh, there are a lot of stupid ways to do humanistic education. uh, And there are a lot of, you know, like, I think, um, uh, just like, purely ideological justifications that are produced um and humanistic education can be a way of like refining a class system down to like a you know a sharp point but it's also true that you know um i i don't think it's at all the case that um young people who want to go to college which is a lot more young people who then can go to college um and also like people who are high school age too and also people who are older older yeah <laughs> don't want that um as part of their lives i think yeah. actually people really really do want it and not because they're like you know longing for meaning and like reading like books like gives them some kind of like you know compensation for how the world is shit they want it because like 
they understand a lot about what's happening in the world and they want to feel like they're part of larger conversations and they have like the ability to connect to other people who care about the same things. I mean, and you know, I see that in like the by and large privileged kids I teach, you know, here at the university and I see that in the low income adults that I teach and like, you know, uh, people are, they're having the same desires right and the desires are not like oh I want to read books to like feel better or to get a job the desires are like you know I think that there are things that need to happen in the world and this is part of being able to like interpret and analyze think and conceptualize is part of how we'll make those things happen including how you think about like how do you want to live yeah you know like you're not going to get that by thinking about like whatever kind of content your PR classes have. Well, yeah, I mean, I just, I think that um, giving students, giving people a sense of like, you know, you are a thinking being and there are tools that you can learn to make you a better thinking being that, and pursue your own, like develop an interiority of things that are important to you and not have those things imposed upon you by your boss or yeah, like get, get good sense instead of common sense. That's there you go. Right. Um, and, uh, and yeah, I, yeah. And yeah. Yeah. Anyway, That's uh, some reflections from two tired teachers at the end of winter quarter. Grateful to be doing the jobs that we're doing. <laughs> so uh, grateful teaching. to the p- powers that gave us these jobs. Well, I'm well. I'm not grateful to. I mean, uh, yeah. Okay, fine. No, I'm. I'm glad to have my job. I'm glad to have. I it. just like object to the sort of like. Oh, we should be grateful for it. You know. Um. Yeah, that's true. Oh yeah. I'd be we, grateful if the world is a better place. I'd be grateful for um <laughs> just to be teaching anybody, but having like just being able to partake of the uh, shared fruits of uh, human social human labor across the what is the (laughs) phrase i'm looking for from marx average human social labor that's required and then you spread out the rather than from each according to his abilities to each according to his needs yeah that there you go uh so this has been an episode of (laughs) Marooned on Mars with Matt and Hillary. A highly focused episode, as always. It was focused until about 15 to 20 minutes ago. And so if you don't want to hear uh, a, a complete shift in dialogue, you stop rewind. listening 20 minutes ago. <laughs> you can email us at maroonedonmarspodcast at gmail.com. That's right. Or you could uh, follow us on Twitter, where we are podcast on Mars. At podcast, at on, podcast Mars. on Mars. You can uh, leave us a voicemail on the Anchor.fm app. Mm-hmm. You could um, donate to us on Anchor, although mm-hmm. I don't recommend it. You could um, buy us carbon offsets, uh-huh. like yep. one of our uh, favorite listeners did. And um, you can rate and review us on iTunes and tell your friends about it. That's right. Pass the word along. Pass the word along. The We have about maybe five more episodes of the Mars trilogy to That's do. amazing. And then... Um, so that'll put us right up into uh, May or so, mm-hmm. which is a perfect time to pass it along to your friends because that's summer reading season. True. And they can buy the trilogy. They can rent it from their, they can rent it from their library. <laughs> that's how libraries work. They can check it out from the library or buy it from a used bookstore. And uh, they can listen to it as well because these will just be online for all forever, eternity. Forever. Making exactly. money for the Spotify company. Finally, finally, we have uh, contributed our part to the great storehouse Woo! of culture. <laughs> 
Ah, <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> I feel such a burden off my shoulders. Okay. Uh, see you next time. All right. Bye. Thank bye. you for listening. Bye.